Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've waited for. From the big screen to Broadway. Hugh Jackman is known to millions of fans as a song and dance man, and to many others as Wolverine, commanding the biggest of stages. Oklahoma, when the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and expressing the most intimate emotion. I have the right to reinvent my life! But as he famously sang in Les Mis, Who am I? We're going to find out. Hugh Jackman, the artist, the activist, and one of the greatest showmen around. We have two things in common. Do I get a hint? I find cooking really hard. I find it really stressful. Do you feel your life is in danger? And the love of my mother is what brought me here. What was the worst investment? Oh, there's a long list of really bad ones. Hugh Jackman, welcome. I have been looking forward to getting the chance to sit down and talk with you. Me too, Chris. I can't wait. So we have two things in common, and I bet you don't know either one of them. Okay. Ooh. Do I get a hint? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> one is we are both born on October 12th. Wow. And I have to say, you know, sometimes they'll have a list of people who are born on this yes, day. Yes. And I have always been tickled to share it with Hugh Jackman and Paparotti. Paparotti. Yes. I can't think of anyone else. Do you know anyone else in that list? Nobody that I care about. <laughs> and, and I just want to say, between you and me and Paparotti, we have sung some great operas and we've starred in Broadway musicals. <laughs> Perfect. We have a lot in common. Oh, that's great. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> yes. For re recently. I'll think and, of you every birthday now. Uh, well, and, and if we're in the same town, we have to celebrate together. 100%. All right. You have a new movie out. <laughs> the Sun, yeah. which opens nationwide on yeah. January 20th. And first of all, you have been nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor. Congratulations. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really proud of the film and I, it was an extraordinary experience, and I think it's a really important story. Well, let's um, talk about it, because yeah. the movie is about your son, who is severely depressed, and you play his father, doing your best to try to help him out. Let's take a look. I don't know what else to do with you, Nicholas. I'm just, I'm telling you straight, I just don't know. I've, I've, I've tried to listen to you. I've tried to, to be there for you. I've tried to give you strength and confidence, but obviously none of that's any use. I mean, you, you really think you can just live your life like that, doing whatever the hell you feel like, getting out of school, never taking any responsibility, refusing to grow up? I mean, what are you gonna do with your life if you're not doing anything? What, what's gonna become of you? You keep trying, but as someone in the movie says, love isn't always enough. Mm. It's, it's a devastating line when I read that. Of course, love is the most important thing, but it's not always enough, particularly when you're dealing with severe mental health crisis, because with mental health, there's so much unknown. The, there's never really a complete answer given as to why this boy is going through this severe depression, because often we don't know the answer. It's often complicated. And I think it's a movie that is really important because it's an epidemic. 
It's, it's, it's really something that's happening all over the world, not just here in America or in Australia. It's all over the world and we don't necessarily know how to handle it. And I think we need to admit that and I think we need to start having these conversations. You're known for playing larger than life figures, showmen, superheroes. I think it's fair to say that this role is, is grim. Why did it appeal to you? Why did you want to play this role? I felt maybe as me as a parent, maybe me as an actor, maybe me as a son, you know, <clears throat> I felt uh, an imperative, like an urgency to play the part. I felt I could connect to the part. As a parent, I understand viscerally that worry that you never, ever get rid of. I'm never sure if you're doing the right thing. Are you doing enough? Could I have done something differently? How are my kids doing? That, that anxiety that you live with all the time as a parent. I, I knew that. And I just felt a gut feeling I had to play the part, so much so that I actually chased the role down, you know. I wonder about one other aspect of this. Some of this played out in your real, real life. You say that your mom had emotional problems and, and she left you and, and your brothers when uh, you were eight years old. Was that part of the pull of this role for you? Um, I think, Chris, we, I, let me say we, I, I'm constantly trying to work out how my childhood is impacting me day to day now, even as a 54-year-old, how it's impacting me as a husband, how it's impacting me in my work as a father. Right. I'm still a son. I'll always be a son. You're a son. We live with the way we were brought up, the good, the bad, the ugly, the damage, the scars. They carry, they, they carry with us. So I, yes, of course I have, uh, you know, in my family, there's been mental health issues and they're things I'm starting to understand more. And of course they've impacted me. And I, I'm curious and determined to be able to make sure that I don't, whatever's been passed on to me, I don't pass on down to my kids. Let's turn to the Hugh Jackman we all know and love, the song and dance man. Uh, you are just finishing an 11 month run uh, in The Music Man, yeah. as Professor Harold Hill, yes. who, who tells the people of the town of River City that they are going to hell. Here we are. A certain words creeping into his conversation, words like swell. So's your old man. It's so, my friends. You got trouble. I love that. I love it too. Now, I now love it why so did much. you want to be the music man? I was in the music man. It was the first thing I ever did at high school. So I was there. David Anderson played it. I was salesman number two. I knew it from then. Of course, I watched the movie. For me, it's a perfect musical. It's a beautiful story. The music is incredible. And particularly, I've wanted to do it for many years, but somehow it came at the right time, particularly post-pandemic, because it is a pure joy machine. And, and I think that's something we all want to feel coming out of the pandemic. We want to feel that we're coming closer together, that we are actually connecting, that we are celebrating the things that matter most. And it's the simple things. It's smiles. It's a meal with each other. It's music. It's dance. 
It's these things that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. They're these elemental things and the show, and I experience it every night. I feel it in the audience. It just feels like a complete joy machine. You know, it's funny because we had done this research that I was quite proud of, and you have just given away, which is that you tried out for this in high school yeah. back in Australia, yeah. and you lost to, and we Dave. found it out, David Anderson. I'm sorry, did I just, I'm so, sorry. So the question is, <laughs> did that bother you that you lost out? And no. do you have any idea where David Anderson is today? Not only do I, I know David Anderson, and he was in my house about four weeks ago. Really? And I got him tickets to the show, <laughs> and he came to see it because I wanted to rub his nose in it, because no, I didn't. Because I, <laughs> I was thinking, he, I thought, you know, you probably don't know where he is, and he's probably at a bar going, hey, I beat out Hugh Jackman for the music man. Uh, by the way, I remember him being absolutely fantastic. Um, and we were talking about it. He could have gone down the showbiz route, but he decided not to. He went into finance, has been very, very successful. But it's, it was really lovely connecting with him and remembering what that was. And by the way, Chris, I didn't know I was going to be an actor till I was a year and a half into acting school. So I was 23, I'd done a whole degree, I'd been in college, done a whole thing. I never thought that was gonna be my future. So certainly when I was 14, that was never, never crossed my mind. I think it's fair to say you are best known to most audiences for having played Wolverine in the X-Men movies. And here we have a clip of you fighting, and it doesn't actually go so well, Mystique. <laughs> oh yeah, right. So there are a couple of things that, that come out of this that I want to ask you about. One is Wolverine is five foot five. Right. You are six foot two. Right. So how on earth did you get yourself cast for this role? <laughs> um, I did about seven auditions. I, 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 am I wired in completely? I want to no. do a little. Okay. No. I remember finally I, I did audition, 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 and then I went to see the head of production. We were talking and he, he said, you know, it's just one problem. I hope the fans are not going to have a problem because the character is meant to be five foot five. And I said, Tom, really, it's going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry about a thing. <laughs> I literally walked out like that. And actually, in the first movie, Chris, yes. I never had my shoes on. Every other actor around me, the, the rule was unless they were a kid, they had to be taller than me. People were on, I was literally crouching like that shoes off, people were on uh, planks and boxes all around me. So we, they went to a great effort. And I think after a while, they just gave up on that. Okay, second question. Uh, how did you learn to deal with those claws? <laughs> you know, we were just watching that clip, Chris, and you know what came into my head? In that fight, I actually stabbed the double of Mystique. Like, so in the beginning, there were, I don't know what we were thinking, they were actually metal. And they were actually sharp. And I used to practice. I, had, I practiced at home. Everyone looked at, and I, because I'd done a lot of fighting. Right. But never with another, I had to get used to another nine inches beyond my hand as I'm fighting. So I had to adjust. So I'd practice, practice, and I would follow through. I've stabbed my thighs. I had like scars. I still have scars on my thighs. And in that particular scene, there's one thing where she's reaching for something. And I go to stab her arm. She forgot to move her arm. And I literally stabbed, they went 
about this deep into her arm. And I'll never forget it. She, I, was, I went white. I've literally just stabbed someone for the first time <laughs> in my life. And she just, the blood was burbling out, like bloop, 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 bloop. It was starting to come. And she just like this, and she goes, I've been stabbed by Wolverine. <laughs> blue. There was just blue and red just pouring down her arm because she was a stunt woman and she's a hell of a lot tougher than me and it was a badge of honour for her. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. You got so jacked for these movies, nine Wolverine movies, and over the years people have wondered, did he juice? Did he take steroids? <laughs> no. I, I love my job and I love Wolverine. Um, I've got to be careful what I say here, but I had been told anecdotally what the side effects are of that, and I was like, I don't love it that much. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I... <laughs> so, no, I just did it the old school way. And I tell you, I've, I've eaten more chickens. I'm so sorry to all the vegans and vegetarians and to the chickens of the world. I've, I've, I've just, I've literally, I'm, the karma's not good for me. If, if, if the deity has anything related to chickens, I'm in trouble. Is it true that you thought the wolverine was a wolf and you started studying wolf moves and then somebody had to say, hey, Hugh, it's a wolverine. It's not a wolf. Chris, your, your research is very good. I had never read the comic book. I got the part. I just, I didn't really know anything about. I didn't, in Australia, we don't have wolverines. I didn't know that was a real animal. I'd never heard of a wolverine. I thought it was a made-up animal, you know, like he's got adamantium, this steel made up. And so I was passing as I was doing rehearsal and I saw at the IMAX they had this documentary about wolves and I was like, ah, oh, perfect, because obviously I'm a wolf, part wolf. So I had this and I went in with all these wolf moves and, and I was doing these moves and the director said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I was just thinking, you know, how wolves are always looking like this because they're actually smelling. They've got their nose to the ground. That's why they're looking like this all the time. And he goes, what do you mean a wolf? And I said, well, you know, Wolverine, I'm a part wolf, so I thought I didn't. He goes, no, you're a Wolverine. I said, well, it's no Wolverines. And he goes, I think you need to go to the zoo. He actually said to me, you need to go to the zoo, which I did. And I was very embarrassingly saw a real live Wolverine. So my research was not even a, a hundredth of your research, Chris. <laughs> but having said that, if now there's I ever know. a wolf part, you are. I'm ready. You're ready. I'm absolutely Hollywood ready. Anybody? Ready. I've got it down. Actually, that looks like a wolf. All right. By 2003, you are playing a very un-Wolverine role in The Boy from Oz as the flamboyant entertainer Peter Allen, and you were having fun. Oh, boy. Whoa, whoa, where my baby, where my baby smiles at me, I go to Rio, De Janeiro, Miami, yo. I go out and then I have to do the samba. So I, I have two questions here. First of all, you were bulk up as Wolverine and you look 
thin there, svelte. I mean, is there a way to bring it back down or? No, that's me. So that's naturally me. So yeah. my nickname at high school was Sticks. Yeah. Because I was literally just sticking. Uh, but if you're like this, how do you get so that you're? You just stop eating 19 chickens a day and yes. stop training like a maniac. Right. And then my body will just go to that. So if I didn't go to the gym or do anything, that's where I'd go to. And when you're dancing and singing 22 songs a night, that's what happens to me. So it annoys my wife constantly when I say this, but I, I'll complain about putting on weight. I find it very hard to put weight on. And she's like, shut up. <laughs> you know what? There's a crowd of people out there saying, shut, shut up, up, you. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things that you were famous for in that show is you would basically ad lib for about 10 minutes. And is it true that one time you brought Barbara Walters and Matt Damon on stage? And if so, what is it that you did with them or to them? I'm just mortified. I, I, I got more and more confident as it went on and more and more brazen and actually took so much license. There's a bunch of people who will never talk to me again. I'm surprised Matt ever talked to me again, but I saw Barbara, Barbara Walters and I brought her up on stage and I, I never had a plan of what I was going to do. I just sort of went with it, whatever was happening. And I saw Matt and I said, Matt, come up and help me. So I thought it'd be fun for Peter, who would really want to be playing with Matt, um, that I would make Matt and I give Barbara Walters a lap dance. Oh, my. And so I gave her a lap dance with Matt Damon, which somehow I managed to turn into a lap dance for Matt Damon from Peter Allen. And I'm shocked that they either of them talk to me ever again. Were they mortified? I mean, I mean, they I, were great sports. They were great sports. Because I must tell you, if, when I'm not that anybody's ever done that, but if I'm in a in an oh. audience and there's audience participation, they've oh. asked people to come in. I am looking down like this. The last There's, thing that I want is anybody to me too. Me too. That's you, what really? would shock me. Yeah, but Peter was the cheekiest, naughtiest guy. I, I somehow got this permission, and my karma is such now that I know. Every time there's audience participation, I go to do this and go, no, you, you don't deserve to do that. You, you should get picked and you should be made fun of. Then, talk about a different role, you play the French fugitive Jean Valjean mm. in Les Miserables. Mm. Take a look. You are brought the gift of life and love so long deny me. Suddenly I see what I could not see Something suddenly Has been gone I understand that this was a notoriously tough shoot and that the director would make you and the other actors perform full take after full take. I mean, it wasn't like, we'll cut a little bit of this, you would do the whole song from beginning mm. to end. Tom Hooper was amazing. He's an amazing director, did The King's Speech, this many, many great movies. And this was the first time ever, I believe, in many years where they were we were doing live singing. So we had a live piano player, we would have an earwig, and we would hear that and we would do it live. And the thing about Lame is it's, it's all sung. There's no real dialogue. Right. So we had to do every time the full song because it may not be able to match. So there were many songs, we spent a day doing it and you would have to be ready to do 28, 30 takes, um, which I, I love. I mean, I, I know there's some actors, I've worked with some actors who are like, oh, three takes, that's enough. 
I, I don't understand that. Like, I spent my whole life training, wanting to be an actor, and then I'm in a beautiful show with an incredible part, and then 150 people have come together and lit and this, and given me the space, and I'm out there, and I'm like, well, where else would I want to be? Do I want to be back in my trailer drinking coffee? No, I want to be here. I'll, I'll be like, can I go again? Can I go again? Can I go again? Because I love it. In 2017, you starred in the movie, The Greatest Showman, playing the circus legend P.T. Barnum, and here's the opening number. <laughs> the movie opened small, but it became a huge international hit. And you have said that it was a passion project for you. It took us eight years to get it made. Um, why, why? Why did it matter so much to you? I was just so invested in it. it. I always wanted to do a movie musical. And in my dream, I'd done Les Mis, but in my dream was to do an original movie musical. And I know how hard they are to do. It's the hardest thing in showbiz. I think it's the Mount Everest of showbiz. There's just so many things that have to come together. And we'd spent eight years trying to get it right. And I, I loved the story. I loved the message of the story. And I had a gut feeling that this was going to touch people. And you're right, Chris. When you say it didn't open great, we were the second worst opening in Hollywood history. It was, it, 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 you know things are bad when you don't hear anything. You know, when things are bad... You mean the agent doesn't call, the studio doesn't call? My agent does. We've been together 25 years. But apart from that, it's crickets. Right. That's when you know it's really bad. Sometimes you'll get a, I can't believe it didn't do well, you were amazing. This, nothing. So, and then it just gradually picked up and gradually kept going. And on and on and on and on and on. And that's what I knew, why I was passionate about it. I knew people would connect with it and it would somehow be inspiring and uplifting. And... Well, it's easy to say now, but I guess uh, in the it end, I, was, I proved right. I've been wrong many times, but in this case, I was right. So I said at the beginning that there are two things we have in common. Yes. And here's the second one. Not so pleasant. How many bouts have you had with skin cancer on your nose? Ooh, four on my nose, one on my shoulder. Four or five, I've lost count, and one on my shoulder. I have had one bout of skin cancer in my nose, and like you, I have turned into a scold on this that take it seriously, Ugh. slather yourself in sunscreen. I mean, people don't know. And you had, we both were lucky. We had a basal cell carcinoma, which yeah. is the, the least serious kind. It is a distinctly unpleasant experience. It's very unpleasant, um, but we're lucky. As, as my I'm doctor to, said I'm to trying me. to look to see where your scars are. Oh, you can see them. <laughs> oh, see yeah, them I get a little bit right yeah. there. Um, mine, mine was right there. And it's so hard because... There's no skin, right. really, so you have to take out quite a lot of flesh and then you're yep. folding and cutting. And it, yep. Anyway, it, it, it's unpleasant, but as my doctor said to me, um, he said, you're going to have to get checked every three months for the rest of your life. Uh, I was 45 when I got my first one. He said, I can tell you now, for the rest of your life, you're going to have a lot more because skin cancer appears 25 years after the damage. So that first skin cancer was me getting sunburned when I was 20. So... And I've been sunburned many times after that. So I've got more coming. And he said, but if getting a, a, a checkup every three months is your cross to bear in life, you should be so lucky. There are many, many people who catch it too late. And I say to everybody, 
please get a checkup. Please just take it from me. Just go for one, one operation on your nose. You will never just That's sit right. in and the sun And wear a hat again. and don't wear be out sunscreen. from no. 11 till 2 or 3. It is not worth it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you've also been very active over the years on a number of projects dealing with global poverty. Mm-hmm. I know you're a big advocate of microcredits as mm-hmm. a way to develop uh, a economies in poor countries. You even went to Ethiopia to learn about coffee farming. Why does that appeal to you and animate you so much? Um, It started with my father, who was an accountant, um, um, but spent most of his meaningful work as an accountant um, in developing countries. And even after he retired, went and volunteered in many developing countries. Um, It was just something that still interests me. And the idea that I think when I grew up, I thought poverty was actually a normal thing, that no matter what, there'll always be some poverty. And then when I realized, as Mandela so perfectly said, it's man-made. This is not natural. It doesn't have to be this way. There is a way for us to share everything where everything's okay and where everyone can have the basic opportunities. And that's our birthright. Um, And it doesn't matter where you're born, that's the way it should be. And I'm inspired by so many people who work in this area. And I think it just, for me, just I felt there was an urgency to it. Finally, I understand that you're set to play in the next Deadpool movie. And even though your character, Logan, or Wolverine, was killed off in the last movie, you're going to play Wolverine again for the 10th time. Yeah. Why? I mean, you categorize it as the Deadpool movie. We like to call it Wolverine 10. That's what we call it <laughs> in our house. Um, and Have you checked with Ryan Reynolds on this? <laughs> I don't need to check with them. I'm kidding. Um, we basically, this is taking place, the story is pre-Logan, which is exactly as you said, where Logan died. So we're pre that in the storyline. Okay. Um, and I honestly, Chris, I really thought I was done. Like, I was at peace with it. Fine. I, I got asked every day, either in interviews or Ryan Reynolds ringing me, can we do it again? I'm like, no, I'm done. Um, someone said to me, I think, it was, I think it was Deb, I think it was my wife. She said, oh, you know, after this, what is it you really want to do? And I was just driving down a day later and I thought, what do I want? And it came to me like that. Because when I keep thinking of me and Ryan, of Deadpool and Wolverine, which are classic comic book rivals, there's also a dynamic that I've never really got to do before as Wolverine. It keeps reminding me, do you remember that great... Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy movie, 48 Hours. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Of course. Um, it reminds me of that. Those two characters, you know, the fast mouth sort of wise cracking guy and the grizzled old sort of tough, you know, acerbic vinegary, you know, character me. And I just thought this is going to be fun, something I've never done before, and I can't wait. But the music man is not Wolverine. And with all due respect, and after this interview, affection, Hugh Jackman at 54 is not Hugh Jackman at 32. True. So how are you going to get in that kind of shape? I have, <laughs> I've learned you can't rush it. I've learned that it takes time. So we have six months from when I finish to when I start filming. And I'm not doing any other work. I'm going to be with my family and train. That's going to be my job for six months. And I'm really fit right now. There's one thing that eight shows a week, being on Broadway, singing and dancing, is I'm fit. So I'm healthy. I have a good place to start. And apologies, chickens. Run a mile. (laughs) Start running now because I'm coming for you. 
Hugh, thank you. This was a delight. It was great, Chris. Thanks for your research. It was really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Hugh Jackman is starring in a new superhero tale, this time an animated one. In Koala Man, Hugh lends his voice as Big Greg, local celebrity and head of the town council. You can catch him in his new role on Hulu, which premieres this month. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.